0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thanks so much for coming to tonight's program on a topic that I know is close to all of our concerns and all of our hearts right now. Um, It I'm Gloria Duffy. Um, I have a new title. My title is Co-President and Co-CEO of Commonwealth Club World Affairs. We'll be doing things a little bit differently this evening Um, as Commonwealth Club World Affairs enters a new era. We are renewing and refreshing our role as a civic uh, convener and enhancing our programs uh, with some more um, uh, live conversation and with um, a look at some action steps that we might be able to take on some of the problems that we are focusing on. We, in the spirit of getting things done, uh, we're going to focus a bit later this evening on, um, towards the end of the program, on what role we can have as individuals uh, for uh, helping improve the lives of our unhoused neighbors and solving the problem of homelessness, which is, of course, the topic that Kevin is addressing in his work and, and his, in his book. We are happy to have a partnership tonight, both from Miracle Messages, the organization that Kevin founded, and the clothing company Bombus, Bombas, Bombas um, as you know, sells socks and of late, long underwear and some other things. And for every item they sell, they provide one of those items for uh, those who someone who is experiencing homelessness. And they work sometimes through organizations like Miracle Messages. And uh, on everybody's chair this evening is a pair of the donated Bombas socks. And those are for you to hand to someone you might see on the street uh, who might be homeless and need a pair of socks. So we'll be talking about other steps beyond that, that we can take as individuals in the last 15 minutes or so of our program. We'll have a bit of an open dialogue about practical steps that might be taken. Now, it is my very special pleasure to introduce tonight's guest. Kelvin Adler is the founder and CEO of Miracle Messages, uh, a nonprofit that has received many awards and a lot of accolades. For helping people experiencing homelessness to rebuild their social support systems and their financial security. Uh, Kevin has done a lot to define and explore the concept of relational poverty, which I'm sure he will talk about. Uh, It's not just that those experiencing homelessness experience financial poverty, but they also have a lack of relationships that provide a safety net and assistance when needed. Kevin has just published, today is publication day of his book, When We Walk By, Forgotten Humanity, Broken Systems, and the Role We Can Each Play in Ending Homelessness in America. Kevin is dedicated to building a world where everyone is seen as invaluable and interconnected. He's leading a revolution in how we treat our unhoused neighbors. His organization has helped over 800 individuals reunite with their loved ones and matched hundreds with weekly calls and texts with volunteer phone buddies from around the neighborhood and around the world. By 2024, Miracle Messages plans to distribute over a million dollars directly to unhoused individuals as sort of a universal basic income. Uh, as part of a randomized control pro- partnership with USC, with major funding from Google.org and other organizations. So let's give Kevin a great big welcome. Thank you. I'm going to just start with some questions, unless you would like to start with any.
1: Well, comments. I just want to say thank you. Um, you know, five years ago, when I had this idea to write this book. Uh, I had no idea, um, just I think how necessary it would be. Um, It's the book that I wish existed when I started this journey ten years ago. And um, but you know the the process of writing a book can be at times isolating. I have some wonderful co-authors I just want to thank. But even in our small little group, it, it wouldn't have been made possible without so many friends, family, supporters, team members. So. I'm just really grateful for all of you being here tonight. Thank you. Yeah. Means a lot. Here, here. Yeah. So
0: So tell us about the title of the book, When We Walk By. Why is that such a meaningful statement to you?
1: You know, I was um I was reading um a letter I wrote after so my uncle Mark had passed away. He was he was fifty years old and he spent 30 years on the streets. Um and, uh, you know, I never thought of Mark as a homeless man. He was just a beloved member of my family. So it wasn't until after Mark passed away, um, that I really started thinking that everyone I'm walking by, that's someone's son or daughter, someone's brother or sister, some, someone, somebody. And, um, you know, I realized that I didn't see people experiencing homelessness at that time as people to be loved. I saw them as problems to be solved. And for me, uh, I I was actually just before coming here, reading a letter I had written at that time, where I was asking myself, what would it take to stop walking by? Uh, Because I just, you know, I think probably a lot of folks here, you you feel helpless and frustrated and wanting to do something, but not sure what to do. So um, it's a book about homelessness, but it really is a book about us as housed people too. And, uh, you know, my journey with Miracle Messages began by just stop walking by and starting to listen. And, um, you know, I, I spent about a year getting to know 24 individuals experiencing homelessness as neighbors and inviting them to share their stories with me um, using um, GoPro cameras and inviting them to narrate their experience of what life is like on the streets. And the basic premise was, I just walk by you. You're still here. What's it like to be you? And, uh, you know, watched um, dozens of hours of footage, and it was heartbreaking, you know, to see people dehumanized, um, ignored most of the time, pitied, scorned. And, um, you know, the the key piece uh, that led to this work was hearing one individual say, you know, I never realized I was homeless when I lost my housing, only when I lost my family and friends. And that hit me just like a lightning bolt when I first heard that because I thought that makes complete sense. And I've never heard any homeless service providers, government agencies talk about what we've come to call relational poverty uh, as a form of poverty. You know, isolation, loneliness, disconnectedness, often the stigma and shame that accompanies it. So uh, in the same way that I thought I, as a housed person, rely on community family, friends, networks, social support to get by. And as is being found more and more to be the case for millions of Americans who are one paycheck away from not being able to pay rent, and we're finding that family and friends is is the kind of the threshold from keeping people from falling over the edge into homelessness, I just thought, well, what does the relational networks, the social capital, the social support of our unhoused neighbors look like? So yeah, the the title was really an effort to remind myself and hopefully invite readers to take a moment and reflect on what happens when we walk by, if we see people as problems rather than as people.
0: You started out, I remember when you came and told me about the idea about GoPro cameras, you moved on from that to engaging people in the community to using their phones to record the record messages to, Mm -hmm. uh, potential relatives and friends out there f- from folks on the street. Um, and that's where the t- the title of Miracle Messages came from. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that phase of your effort to connect people back with their families and friends?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, hear someone say, I never realized I was homeless when I lost my housing, only when I lost my family and friends. And um, I decided to just take a walk down Market Street. Uh, a few blocks from here, and go up to everyone I saw who was visibly homeless and basically ask, um, do you have any family or friends you'd like to reconnect with? And uh, it just turned out that the first person I met was a man named Jeffrey, uh, who said he hadn't seen his family in 22 years. Uh, He recorded a short video. Uh, I invited him to record a short video to his niece, his nephew, his sister, his dad. Uh, Went home. Did a online search, found a Facebook group connected to his hometown, posted the video there with a short note. And within one hour, the video went viral. Um, it made the local news that night as the leading story. Uh, classmates started commenting, saying, hey, I went to high school with Jeffrey. I work in construction. Does he need a job? You know, hey, I I went to the uh, I I work at the congressman's office. Does he need health care? And um the town raised over $5,000 within a week to try to bring him home. Uh, They missed him. And in the first 20 minutes of the post, his sister got tagged and she got on the phone the next day with me. And uh, she told me that Jeffrey had been a missing person for 12 years. it was broad daylight, downtown San Francisco a few days before Christmas. So, uh, you know, at that point um, I started doing it full time. Uh, what became Miracle Messages, because I knew Jeffrey wasn't the only one and this shouldn't be happening. We shouldn't have someone in some ways that's that visible, you know, rush hour, Old Navy flagship store, fourth and market, third and market, a- a- and yet to perhaps some of the people that are that he matters to the most, um, not knowing where he is. Uh, so yeah, that, that was uh, a phase of wandering the streets and hoping that uh, people would say, no, I'm not interested in this service, to be honest, Gloria, because I just didn't think I, I was up for it. I didn't know what I was getting into. And, um, you know, from December, 2014 to March, there was no more reunions because I didn't offer the service. I was just like, I don't know about this. And then I went to uh St. Anthony foundation serving meals, you know, uh, every, every day for 60 plus years made an announcement. They invited me in, Hey, would anyone be interested in reconnecting to a loved one? No one was interested. I was kind of like, Oh, thank God. I don't know if I could do this. Like this is, you know, I don't know if I'm up for this. And then as I'm leaving, uh, this gentleman comes up to me, says, um, hi, uh, I heard you're helping people reconnect to their families. I said, yes, I am. Said, uh, well, I haven't seen my family in 33 years and, uh, I'd love to uh, record a message. And that was Johnny. And he hadn't seen his brothers and sisters over 30 years, recorded a video message, posted the video. And again, within three weeks, all of his brothers and sisters came from across the country on their own dime to reunite with him and sitting there in a hotel room. And he's saying, thank you for giving me my family back. And so I said, all right, I have to keep I have to keep this up. And uh, fortunately, it's it's not just me anymore. And it's not just wandering the streets with cameras and recording. Uh, we now uh, offer at Miracle Messages three programs. So we have our family and friend reunification services where someone wants to reconnect to a loved one. Uh, it could be a, a video. It could be an audio message. There's an online form, a paper form. There's a phone number, which I still don't yet know my... Partner's phone number by heart. I'm sorry, Taj. She's sitting right there. <laughs> but I know this phone number by heart. Uh, it's one eight hundred miss you. One eight hundred miss you. M I S S Y O U. So we invite folks across the country who are experiencing homelessness or wanting to refer someone, call that number, and we take down some information. And we have now a network of digital detectives, volunteers who make phone calls, write letters, and do the internet searches to find loved ones. So that, that program has uh, reunited about 800 family and friends since 2014. But we also know for some folks, family is part of the problem, not part of the solution, or bridges have been burned. And, and how do you tackle relational poverty if uh, family isn't, isn't an option? And that's where we launched our second program, which is our uh, phone buddy program. I don't know if I'm answering questions that I've just asking myself. Okay, so you're doing, tell me if you know. Doing. Okay, uh, I, I didn't look at the cue cards and phones. Um, so our second program is our phone buddy program, and we launched that during the pandemic. Um, basically, folks in shelter and place hotels were getting provided with a roof over their head, but did not have anything else. And the service providers were saying, "Hey, you know, we're barely able to keep people alive with food, water, shelter, clothing, housing." you know, you need a lot more to be fully human. Can we, you know, is there, uh, can your volunteers help out? So we initially started with 80 people in the shelter-in-place hotels, connecting for 30 minutes a week, phone calls and text messages with um, volunteers. And it started in the Bay Area, kind of like a Big Brothers, Big Sisters type program for unhoused neighbors. And uh, that program now is serving over 300, nearly 350 uh, unhoused individuals across the country and, um, volunteers all around the world. 30 minutes a week, phone calls, text messages, there's weekly support calls. There's a log. If there's an issue that you're concerned about, you can flag it for a caseworker, one of our staff members to follow up on. And the, the friendships in that program have just been beautiful to witness. Um, and through those friendships, you build trust, uh, you know, Every conversation can lead to a relationship and the relationships lead to trust. And when you trust someone, you want to invest in them and see their success. You know them as a person. And so we started hearing from our volunteers and they said, hey, uh, we'd really like to be on equal footing with this person as friends. But it's very hard to do that when um, they don't know what they're going to eat tonight or they don't know where they're going to um, get gas to go back to work on Monday and and be able to drive is there a way we can give them money directly? And uh, we said, sure, let's raise some money. And we we raised, I think, about $50,000 initially uh, to distribute to 14 individuals who were nominated by their unhoused friends in the Phone Buddy program. Uh, $500 a month, six months, no questions asked. Um, and it turned out to be one of the first basic income pilots for unhoused individuals in the country. We saw within six months two-thirds of people in that program secure housing. They use the money better than we could have used it for them.
0: And you had some requirements as far as setting up bank accounts or other financial...
1: In that first pilot, we did. Mm-hmm. We, set up, we had everyone set up bank accounts, um, but we've now expanded to do... Um, we had uh, Google.org and a few others reach out as funders and say, we need to bring this to kind of the randomized control trial level so we can really test it at a higher level. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now we have uh, $2.1 million that we're distributing in direct cash transfers uh, with USC, and that's going to be $750 a month for 12 months to over 100 unhoused neighbors throughout the state of California. And in that one bank account, or uh, there's uh, there's, uh, kind of the uh, debit cards uh, that folks are receiving too. Uh, so to date, we've given out more than half a million dollars to neighbors experiencing homelessness. So,
0: you use a particular term to refer to those you serve—people um, experiencing homelessness. I think more commonly we refer to homeless people or the homeless. Yeah. Tell us about the intentionality of your use of words
1: very intentional yeah and it's not meant to be um overly scripted you know it can it's really meant to be a reminder that fundamentally we don't we would never look at each other as like housed people you know like look at this room full of housed people y'all look so good you know And, and yet that's that's hopefully part of everyone's identity here, most of our identities here. Um, and yet we have defined an entire group of people by their lack of one physical need. Um, and that's homeless. And that includes, you know, a single mother uh, escaping a domestic violence situation. That includes a foster care youth who, you know, one out of every three children young young people who age out of foster care by the time they're 26 will have experienced homelessness and that goes up to 60% for a uh, black uh, young people in the foster care system uh when you talk about folks who have health issues mental health physical health of any kind so um yeah it, it's a monolith without much meaning and it actually i think not only is dehumanizing towards them, our neighbors experiencing homelessness. It's also dehumanizing towards us. We lose a little bit of our own humanity in this process. So, uh, I think 10, 20 years from now, we'll look back at the language we use to talk about the homeless and we'll be as shocked as we, you know, are on, on I mean, you know, many other, so in the book, one of the things I mentioned is there is a. Um, uh, a documentary from, I think it was Chris Wallace's father, Mike Wallace, I believe, mm-hmm. did a documentary. I think it was in 1980. And uh, he, the documentary was called The Homosexuals. Mm-hmm. The Homosexuals. And you'd hear that today and you'd say, oh my gosh, like that's how offensive and, and all sorts of identity and background and, uh, all gr- clumped together into this. Well, I think The Homeless will someday be seen with a similar level of, like, surprise and, and uh, amazement. So.
0: so what happens, what tends to happen when people experiencing homelessness connect with family, friends that they've been out of touch with for a long time?
1: Oftentimes, when someone says they want to reconnect, there's an initial hesitation, because then we say, sure, we can help you do that. But they're kind of like, are you, are you serious? Is this is this real? And I think there's been a lack of um, the understandable lack of trust in service systems, where folks have felt burned or had promises that are not then you know followed up on. Um, you know, one of the most common responses we get is they, you know, if someone ch- changes their mind, they'll say, uh, "I can't. I feel dirty." You know, this kind of internalized sense of worthlessness. So it really gets to why people are disconnected in the first place. And what we found is digital literacy does play an issue, right? Access to a phone, computer, a charging station, Wi-Fi, you know, being able to have access to a device, phone numbers change, addresses change. But there's also, you know, bureaucratic barriers. So under HIPAA, you know, I think many service providers are terrified of violating HIPAA. And we also want to protect privacy. You know, it's confidential health information uh, of someone's status as a person experiencing homelessness. But they uh, oftentimes the, the error is on the side of not revealing anything or being willing to share anything about, oh, this person's looking for you or oh someone came. Would you be interested in reconnecting? So you end up, if, when you walk into a shelter, there's oftentimes missing person flyers of parents, siblings, looking for, you know, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, moms, and dads. But the biggest barrier of all that we're finding is, is the emotional barriers, you know, shame, self-loathing, fear, not wanting to be a burden. Um, and in, when we walk by in the book, one of the chapters, each chapter begins with someone's story because I thought it was really important to kind of um, ground each idea, each element into uh, someone's actual experience. And the chapter that begins with uh, Linda, uh, Linda uh, is a person who is experiencing homelessness in Florida. Uh, She hadn't seen her family in years, if not decades. Her daughter found her while she was incarcerated. She had been picked up because there's a revolving door between incarceration and homelessness and wrote her a letter and in the letter said, mom, I miss you. We're here in uh, Wisconsin. We have a room for you. We would love to have you come move in with us. Like, please say yes. We're ready to go. And she never responded to the letter and she wanted to, she did, but she said, what kind of mother am I to move back in with my daughter as a grown adult. I have all these problems. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. I don't want to be a burden. And she ended up being on the streets for many years. After that, fortunately, one of our um, staff members in Florida met her, recorded a message to uh, to her family, and they were able to reconnect and she moved back with her family. Uh, But this emotional barrier, this burden, is is tremendous um you know when i started this journey i wore the camera for five minutes and panhandled and i had to take it off it was it felt so deep i almost felt like i had to explain oh i'm doing a project it's an experiment you know i'm not really it was it was just awful uh so i can't imagine having that as a daily reality and and the kind of the shame that that must come with it and i don't think we talk about that enough um, and it's, you know, it's an issue that our neighbors experiencing homelessness have to live with, but it's something that we all uh, are part of. Um, and, and that goes back to how we see our neighbors experiencing homelessness as either neighbors or as, you know, problems. So
0: You mentioned, um, I think a lot of what you're talking about, about the state of mind of those experiencing homelessness, is not familiar to most Americans because again it's those experiencing homelessness are sort of a, thought of as a group, and there is not much interaction mm-hmm. how How would one better convey the issues and barriers and challenges that really uh, that folks experiencing homelessness really have every day um, how would you make this more known in society?
1: Mm. Well, I just published a book.
0: Yes, okay. that's, that's a very good step.
1: <laughs> not to, you yeah. know, but... More media
0: just... coverage. I mean, do we teach? Yeah. I mean, I don't know in American studies courses. Is there sociology courses? I, I
1: think a first step is we have to have very, very, very honest conversations about this issue in a ways we're not right now on, on a lot of issues. Um, the In the book, the last chapter, the last two chapters are on solutions. So humanity breakdowns goes through all forms of that relational poverty, stigma, shame, paternalism, hyper-individualism, exclusion, where many cities make it illegal to be homeless, uh, anti-loitering, anti-camping, anti-sleeping. Then there's a systems part, housing, healthcare, criminal justice system, foster care systems, healthcare, and then there's a solutions bit. And you're like, okay, finally, like this is, let's get some hope here. And in the beginning of the solutions chapter, uh, it felt very important for my co-authors and I to lead the chapter with a time that each of us were incredibly biased and dehumanizing towards an unhoused neighbor. Um, and in my case, it was meeting a man um, who who wore one of the original cameras. And I found myself just instinctively... Reaching my hand into my pocket and grabbing my keys to hold as a potential weapon. And I, because I wasn't sure, are they gonna lunge at me or, you know, is this, am I safe? And th- that's where I started on this issue. I'm not proud of that. It's not something I, you know, write about with a lot of joy. But I think being able to, there, there's really in this book, we're, we're tried not to have any other, as in like, oh, you haven't read this book you're not, you're not on the in crowd, right? It, it's really because I think that's part of the problem on this issue is there's too much us and them. It's constantly us and them. And whether it's with people who are in support of building affordable housing or not, whether it's people who are homeless advocates or not people who are, you know, for public safety or not, it, it's constantly polarized and bifurcated. And we have so much we have too much of that in our country right now. So I think the the starting point is to just begin by seeing the complexities of this issue to imagine each person. And each time we talk about homelessness to think that we're talking about someone's son or daughter, someone's brother, sister, or, or, you know, someone, somebody, and then, you know, inviting um, individuals to really get to know their unhoused neighbors as neighbors. Um, Because I do think I wouldn't, I I only knew about homelessness through the relationship with my uncle and that wasn't much, you know, my relationship with my uncle was not, him as a neighbor, as a person experiencing homelessness, it was him as just a beloved member of my family who, you know, remembered every birthday and, you know, sent me a card, um, every, every year, you know, even when he was homeless, you know, never forgetting that, um, that, you know, it was my birthday, you know, so I didn't think, I didn't know anything about homelessness, because it didn't it, it was irrelevant to the experience it was very relevant to his experience of what life is like when we dropped him off at the greyhound station uh, you know after christmas or thanksgiving but it was um irrelevant because i cared about him so much you know and in some ways i think that was the right starting point for me on this issue and maybe for a lot of us is we have to know someone who's our uncle mark where you could no more walk away from them than you could walk away from someone that you love as much as, you know, my beloved uncle. Um, and I think once we get that close and we care that deeply and we truly are in relationship, I think we as humans know what to do. I think we're actually pretty good at problem solving and pretty good at saying, Oh, that doesn't make sense. you here's your situation. That's complicated. Can I work with you? Can we navigate this together? Um, and that's really the, the entire journey encapsulated in, you know, 30 seconds and a few tears (laughs) of the last 10 years.
0: I was thinking as you were talking, there are several hundred thousand homeless folks experiencing homelessness in this country, which means there are several million friends, family members of those folks out there. Just interesting statistically.
1: And and Gloria, I I mean, I, I know we're doing this, but uh, is that a a story that you'd want to share as well, your your connection to this?
0: You can interview me too. Oh, can I? So uh, for 17 years, I have been housing and supporting a formerly homeless sibling, younger sibling. Uh, My husband knows this story because it's a daily story every day, Uh, even though she's housed in a small town in central Oregon where it was inexpensive enough for us to buy a little house, my other sister and I. Um, It is a daily challenge because she has issues related to substance abuse and mental health. And So anyhow, the saga continues. And uh, one thing I will say from that experience, um, she has stayed housed. She has food, medical care, utilities, pets, transportation when she needs it. Um, there's a level of trust when it's a family member. Yeah. We were children together. We traveled, we went to school and did all those things you know, together. So our offer to house her and support her is accepted, even though it's fractious at times, uh, because there's a, a basic, family level of trust and connection that doesn't exist with large social mm-hmm. systems for um, helping those experiencing homelessness. So there, there, there is a fundamental strength there that can be helpful in assisting someone. Mm. And there's a lot more to say, but we're talking yeah, about it tonight. Um, so we have a lot of discussion Everywhere from our cities, our state legislatures, about large, big programs that can help building tiny houses, building um, navigation centers, something that's been uh, done here in San Francisco. What's going on in the bigger policy level, at the bigger policy level, that's good and bad? Mm. So what, and what should, what should be done or can big policy handle this as, as an issue?
1: Uh, It can, and it must. And in fact, I think one of the uh, misnomers in the book is that, that, uh, you know, oh, it's, it's just, you need to kumbaya, be friends, get, get relational and then problem solved. And it's actually uh, a starting point. Because if we don't care enough relationally and know people as people, we're not going to fight for the kinds of policy changes that are essential. Uh, We have to build a lot more housing, right? And we have to have housing not just in one or two parts of town. It has to be more dispersed and integrated. Um, You know, in the book, I share a story of um, a time in San Francisco's history, this wonderful city that once had a population of people experiencing homelessness far larger than what we've seen today, and that was after the 1906 earthquake and fire, where in a population of 400,000 people, 250,000 experienced homelessness, Uh, episodic homelessness. It's a different form, but we're homeless, and many of whom went to Golden Gate Park. But in that moment, that wasn't a time of, well, you know, maybe we're not going to build housing in this neighborhood and we're going to you know those folks maybe they're deservedly you know what did they do wrong they should have had you know better fire and earthquake insurance right like it it wasn't a time where we're trying to point blame or have any notion of where the person failed we looked at where society failed where systems failed and how they can be strengthened and what we saw is some of the f- earliest examples in this country of scattershot housing where still to this day there are earthquake cottages mm-hmm. that were paid off 2 dollars a month to 50 dollars paid off and then brought from Golden Gate Park to a spot in San Francisco and then suddenly your neighbor who was formerly homeless is now your house neighbor they're no longer your homeless neighbor and um, by i think it was 2 years after the earthquake and fire the entire park was was clear because everyone had been housed. Everyone had gotten, found housing. So that's a very high level, you know, I mean, we could talk about issues in the criminal justice system where, you know, uh, it, it it's becomes increasingly difficult to find employment, to get federal benefits, the challenges that people have accessing benefit programs that we, we have a pretty meager so, social safety net and even that social safety net is largely inaccessible because of administrative burden because of hey you have a housing choice voucher well what landlords are going to choose to accept the housing choice voucher if they can choose and you can't discriminate but you know it happens so there's a lot of policy uh you know prescriptions in the book that uh, especially my co-author Don Burns who's a scholar of um homeless policies of the last four decades. It was really an honor to write it with him, you know, outlined, but I think it fundamentally begins with our hearts and minds. And I think if we change our hearts and minds and get to know the relational aspect, I, I have enough confidence that we'll then vote for and fight for the policies that are needed to, you know, address this issue.
0: So I have some great questions oh, from boy. our audience. Okay. And once we're done with these, We'll move on to a more interactive discussion, maybe about practical steps that people can take themselves uh, to address homelessness. In August, Together SF Action published a research report describing excessive city bureaucracy and limited mayoral power as two roots of the city's inability to address and support those experiencing homelessness. How can this be addressed?
1: Wow, okay. Yeah, I was going to say, you know. Um my view generally, I I don't know if I have brilliant thoughts on 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 what's going on in San Francisco right now. I'm frustrated. Um it seems like a lot of money has been spent with very little to show. And I think what happens is we get into this conversation where one side is saying, well, hey, city and homeless services. We've spent all this money and we have so little to show for it. What's going on, right? We need, we need change. And and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And then on the other side, you say, well, you have no idea how many people would be experiencing homelessness if we weren't doing what we're doing, right? Like for every one person who becomes homeless, three people, uh, for one, every one person who gets housed, three people end up on the streets. So then it's a prevention question and we're doing, we're, we're we're trying to withhold floodwaters and it's just not strong enough as a, as you know, a barrier. And that's also true. Um, I think the problem though, that I'm seeing is there's a lot of truth in both sides of that discourse, but what's missed is this other system going on. That's not just homeless services and city administration, not just, um, you know, uh, prevention and things, you know, keeping away from a much worse flood. Um, it's the, the humanity aspect. It's how are we talking about our neighbors experiencing homelessness? Are we talking about them? Are we talking with them? Do we know them by name? And do we understand and accept our role in what's going on? I mean, in just a few days, next week, there's a major event happening in San Francisco. There's a Chronicle article about how our neighbors experiencing homelessness are being pushed outside just as we've saw during the Super Bowl, maybe we should actually bring them front and center. Maybe this is a moment where we should not try to push people to the side like every city does. It's not just San Francisco and say, this is happening here and it's going to happen in your city if it's not happening already. And we have to get to know our neighbors as neighbors and not see them as people to just push away. Um, so yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm very frustrated with what's happening in the city, but I also personally feel more hopeful about this issue than I have in a lot of t- a long time. Uh, there's incredible people doing good work on this space, and we have found an increased willingness to innovation. That's what I'm excited about. You know, 10 years ago, when I started this journey, the thought of, uh, tiny homes, small modular homes, or uh, maybe lower cost construction methods being used, it was a Mm non-starter. It was permanent supportive housing, or shelters, encampments. And, you know, there wasn't much room between that. But the truth is, like, it's, it's way too expensive to be able to develop the kind of housing we need. It's a it's a yes, and not a yes, but problem. So it's yes, and we need more permanent supportive housing. And we also need housing units of the type that, uh, you know, perhaps you or I would want to live in. Like, I think that's a good litmus test that sometimes gets overlooked, is would you or I want to live in that situation? I wouldn't want to live in almost any of the shelters that I've ever visited. And again, not a knock on San Francisco, but, you know, to be in a congregate environment, hundreds of people that, you know, uh, get in by this time, get out by that time, Uh, can't bring your stuff, can't bring your partner, can't, uh, you know, all sorts of issues, right? Really the homeless shelter, right? Like the monolith, just group everyone together. There's, you know, there's smaller ones that are incredible, doing good work that are, you know, perhaps more focused on one identity or one experience, but I wouldn't want to be in that situation. Well, would I be willing to be in a, a 500 square foot tiny home where I have my own space and maybe, you know, share a restroom with a few other people, if that, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's not, you know, maybe long term, but sure, that sounds like a pretty good quality of life, a dignified uh, way to be. So um, I think that's a question we don't ask often enough, is we don't say, is this a situation or a circumstance in which we'd want to live? Or is it just, hey, here's this offering, why aren't you going there? It should be, you know, you should, you should accept it. Um, and the last thing I'll just mention is in one of the uh, um, chapters on paternalism, there's an um, incredible story. Is anyone familiar with the story of Ronnie uh, Ronnie Goodman, the, uh, Ronnie the runner? He's an incredible human being. He passed away a few years ago. He was a person experiencing homelessness. He got out of San Quentin and dedicated his life to art and running. He ran in the San Francisco Marathon and raised... I think well over $10,000 for charitable causes. So he's running and he made incredible, incredible artwork. And Ronnie was a friend of mine. And unfortunately, he passed away on the streets. He lost his son to gun gun violence and it led to a kind of a downward spiral. Um, But before he passed away and really when he was a little bit more in a stable spot, he had uh, an offer of housing uh, in the Tenderloin. And he told me this one day. And I kind of looked at him, I was like, well, Ronnie, you're currently living in a tent. Uh, Wouldn't you want to get into the housing unit if you could? Like, that seems like a logical thing to take advantage of. And he kind of looked at me, you know, real patiently, like, well, you know, Kevin, um, that housing unit is in a building where drugs uh, are present 24-7. And I have an addiction history. And if I get back in that unit, I am going to relapse and not make it. And what went in my mind from this paternalistic, wow, judging Ronnie for making this very poor life decision, it then shifted to, that makes a lot of sense. That That's a really good point. I think you're, you, you're making a, a very logical decision. Um, so you know, hoping that that level of kind of familiarity and, and getting to know folks at a, at that kind of level of intimacy can drive policy uh, in a way that it's not right now.
0: You mentioned the APEC conference, which is coming up in a few days, and actually three days of conference activities will take place right here at the club, co-hosted by the Commonwealth Club and World Affairs. And um, I think it would be, there will be 21 delegates from 21 countries around the Pacific Basin talking about a variety of issues, mainly environmental and energy issues. But I think there should be a way for um, common issues caused in advanced economies without appropriate social uh, safety nets, uh, what we share in common in that area. So um, homelessness probably should be on that agenda, and we'll see what we can do about that. Okay. So maybe one more question, and then let's go to a a discussion. And this leads us right into it. How do you recommend the average person better get to know their unhoused neighbors safely, respectfully, and genuinely?
1: Okay. So I was thinking about this before, and I want to share this with all of you. You tell me if it resonates or not. So um, I think of an acronym. And uh, the first letter is I, is imagine. So imagine the person that you're Seen as you're walking by, or the person when you talk about homelessness, imagine that's someone's son or daughter because it turns out they are. And perhaps the next step is connect, get to know that person then in a relational way, that's not um, seeing them as a problem to be solved, but seeing them as a person to be loved. Connect them, and whether it's with our phone buddy program, uh, we we right now have a wait list of neighbors experiencing homelessness looking for uh, volunteer friends. We have more neighbors who are unhoused who have raised their hand and said, I need someone to talk to, and we don't have enough volunteers. You know, 30 minutes a week, phone call, text message. So connect, whether it's phone buddies, whether it's visiting a, a shelter, a soup kitchen, talking to someone in your community, in your neighborhood who's experiencing homelessness, and then the third letter um, is unite, and unite both as people because fundamentally they're a person first before they're experiencing homelessness, right? It's, it's first person, so unite kind of the this, this shared, these are our neighbors, this is one community. Our neighbors who are unhoused were once our neighbors who are housed, right, more than of people who are homeless in San Francisco were once housed in San Francisco, more than 90% of people who are homeless in California were once housed in California. So fundamentally these are our neighbors and then also unite connecting the relationships we have uh, and, and the stories we're hearing and the issues we're kind of co-discovering with policies with what's happening in our city, with what's not, you know, with, with with when we talk about criminal justice system, when we talk about affordable housing, when we talk about income inequality, or when we talk about, you know, healthcare disparities, we should all have someone whose name and face we can think of, you know? And so that, if you spell it out, it's I see you. I see you. And I am... Uh, you know, my partner is an emergency medicine doctor, so there is a connection if you think of it, but I see you as in, yes, I am seeing you. So I think if we just remember, imagine, connect, unite, I see you. Um, I think that's a starting point. Uh, but I would invite folks to just be in conversation. Would love to hear ideas. There's so much happening nationwide, exciting stuff happening in cities, big and small, I would love to be able to showcase some of those ideas and innovations. Um, we're doing that on our website, when we walk and then on social media. So I uh, would love to hear from you also on once you get close, once you're in relationship, once you're connecting what you're hearing and seeing to the broader issues in your community, what problems, what, what innovations and what approaches are needed. And it might just be, we need more funding for this program. We need to pass bond measures you know and, and be able to you know invest in housing that that's a huge part of it so it's not saying we need to reinvent the wheel not saying that this is a silver bullet on homelessness i don't think there is i think it's a starting point and it's a human centered starting point that and the last thing i'll say in a moment that feels like very frustrating in the world a lot happening that feels overwhelming incredibly sad this is an issue that we actually have tremendous power to make a difference. This is not an issue out there. This is an issue not only in our cities, but on our blocks. And if it's not visible on your block, as in a person who's maybe outside an encampment, there's very likely family that's doubled up or tripled up. There's very likely a person who's one paycheck away Uh, because half of the country right now is one paycheck away from not being able to pay rent. And forty-seven percent of Americans say they don't know where they'd get four hundred dollars for an unexpected emergency. 47%. So you almost have to start asking why aren't tens of millions of people experiencing homelessness with those numbers. We never ask why aren't there more people who are homeless? We always say, why are so many people homeless? Well, why aren't there more? And what we're finding is family, friends, community, church, synagogue, mosque, informal economy, relationships, social capital is making up the difference, doubling up, tripling up, small payments, loans, job offers. And if you don't have that, or you've lost that, or it's not resource rich enough to begin with, it can be incredibly difficult, not only to not become homeless, but then to get back off the streets. Because people get into housing, but then they fall right back over the edge into homelessness because they've been put into a four walls and a roof, but not had, um, not had the community, the social support. The next time that there's an issue that they're going to face, and inevitably, you know, life's complicated, and, and folks will face it. So, I do think it starts with getting to know our neighbors as neighbors and being in those relationships. So.
0: Thanks, Kevin. So let's talk a bit um, with our community members who are here about the issue of homelessness and ideas about what can be done, practical steps. We've already told you everybody is going to take home a pair of Bomba socks. Please hand them to a person on the street who may be experiencing homelessness. We also will offer ability uh, for people to sign up, say, for your phone buddies program, but we have some mics here let's hear from you all what can be done what are the needs what what would you like to to offer to the discussion so your icu so the sea was connect and you said that pretty breezily
2: but i'm sitting here i don't even know how to give away these socks hmm. and i walk past people experiencing homelessness every day and in my heart that's someone god loves as much as god loves me but i am Terrified to approach them, and yeah. I don't mean because I think they're going to hurt me. I just mean because I do not know what to do. So, could you act out how we give away the self Sure.
1: <laughs> that sounds great. Um, uh, what what I so what I started out with is basically um, just walking past and feeling incredibly helpless, overwhelmed, frustrated, and then maybe saying hi, and then quickly kind of skirting off, right? Because like I. I so that's where I started and what I found that's really helpful is if you're talking to someone who's unsheltered perhaps the starting point could just be hi how are you and it just pause and you know see if there's a reaction and and if the person you know doesn't show an interest in responding um that may be a sign to continue walking and that's okay too like this this the the the, the response to this book should not be Well, I'm never walking by again. (laughs) I now, I I have quit my job. I've quit my life. I now stop Um, uh, because that's not realistic. But I think if you do walk by, when you walk by, thinking for a little minute longer, why did I walk by? Um, Is there anything I could have done? Did I choose to disengage because I felt afraid? Basically, what you just said is an incredible starting point. To, to acknowledge fear, courage, vulnerability, uncertainty. Um, I think you 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 just exemplified what I'm saying in in a, a really beautiful way, actually.
0: So, Kevin, what would you say if
1: you had to script? So get down or... to a script, I'd say, hi, how are you? How long have you lived in the area? And then I'd if, uh, ask something like, do you have any family or friends nearby? And that was a starting point for our programs. Um, I also have said before, Hey, I saw you sitting here. I wasn't quite sure what to say to you, but I thought I'd just introduce myself. Um, the person who's you're passing by is in a much more vulnerable situation than we are. We're much, uh, you know, a person, one neighbor experiencing homelessness who. Uh, suffered from schizophrenia and had it, it reminded me in many ways of my uncle. Um, I asked him, what do you wish we knew about your experience that we don't know? And his response to me was, um, I just wish people knew that I was so much more of a threat to myself than I would ever be to them. Uh, so I, I think it's just taking a moment to introduce ourselves, have a conversation. And I'll just say, you could go with a friend doesn't have to be by yourself. Go in broad daylight. We do outreach uh, at Miracle Messages and would welcome you to join us and join our group and do an outreach in your community. Um, And also, most of what we see, we see a a fraction of people experiencing homelessness. We see a very unsheltered, sometimes very acute um, form of homelessness where there may be many other uh, issues going on. And... You know, relationships are important in those cases, but there could be some, you know, medical issues there, you know, addiction, substance abuse issues, um, which is much more prevalent on, you know, on the streets. Um, You know, you can also go to shelters, soup kitchens, uh, volunteer. Uh, But I often just start a conversation by saying, hi, how are you? How long have you lived in the area? Do you have any family or friends nearby? And just introducing myself, and I, you know, pretty quickly can gauge whether someone is receptive to talk. Um, Thanks. So.
2: Hi, um, I'm actually one of your volunteers.
1: Hi. Hi. What's your name? Leslie. Leslie.
2: And um, I have a buddy, and she's terrific, and we talk every week for almost an hour, (laughs) and it's wonderful. And I just wanted to comment about your first question about how we change things. I think one of them is we have to change the conversation because what I didn't really realize because the news just focuses on people who are drug addicted and living on the streets is that she's homeless through no fault of her own. Um, She lived in a house where the landlord died. The house was sold, and she was evicted. Uh, A few weeks later, she was uh, in her car at a stop sign, and a drunk driver plowed into her. Mm -hmm. So she had a really good job. She's college-educated. She could not go to work. She's uh, living on disability, and she's been living in a van for five years. Um, Those are the kind of stories where people will feel, I don't know, much better or whatever. But see, a whole different side, I think, of what unhoused is rather than you're worrying about – Um, whether the person in the tent on in her corner is going to be um, threatening to you. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an important um, part of a conversation you need to get out, too, that the the people who are homeless. I think also the social service agencies need so much more um, education. She tried to meet with her local congressperson before, um, no, supervisor before COVID, and she's immunocompromised. Mm -hmm. He didn't even know what immunocompromised meant um she spoke to one social service agency and their response to her was oh you're so smart you don't need our help you can figure this out for yourself (laughs) and um i have to say there are some days when talking to her breaks my heart but there are some days where we just laugh and we talk about the beatles because she loves the beatles (laughs) Mm. and we talk about music and when tony bennett died we talked about tony bennett (laughs) and we talk about my granddaughter um but she's my age she has no family. Her um, her parents are deceased. Her sisters are deceased. So she doesn't have all those other social mm-hmm. networks that you've been describing. But um, um, and she lives in Modesto, and um, and she's trying, but she hasn't just been able to to, to break through. And um, mm. so I just have to say, there are so many phases of poverty that I th- uh, homelessness that I think if we could widen the picture. That might also help.
1: That's beautiful. And, and just as a question, since I'm interviewing everyone tonight, it seems it sounds like not only your friend is benefiting from the relationship, but it sounds like oh, you are as well.
2: Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I always you know, on the login, you always say a positive note. Um, I always have a positive note to say she says mm-hmm. talking to you. Uh, last week was, it's so great to have an intellectual conversation. because there's no one (laughs) in the cars behind her or wherever um, that she feels she can have that. So
1: thanks for sharing that. that Yeah.
3: Thank you. Hi. um, So I work for Episcopal Community Services of San Francisco. We are the largest provider of housing and supportive services uh, in San Francisco, now in Marin and soon to be San Mateo. I think my comment to you is more on, first of all, thank you for the work that you've been doing and the book. It's all incredibly impactful. And as a person who works in this sphere, I'm deeply grateful for what you're doing and what you're bringing to light because it is so important. Mm. I think for me and for what I do for them and where I sit, my question is not, my question is more on addressing the wider public Mm. and looking to... Misconceptions, misunderstandings, and speaking to the wider community on bringing to light these stories of experiences of homelessness and extreme poverty, and how to be a light and a help to those who need.
1: Yeah, well said. That's great. Yeah, I, and I'll just say I, I love. I mean, first ECES is one of our um, uh, one of our partners, and we just yeah grateful for the work you're doing. Um, it's often thankless every day. So, um, and, and I, I think a big part of this is narrative change, right? Like we've actually added, we say, you know, family reunifications, phone buddy program, basic income, but one area is just narrative change. And we've had individuals, you know, one individual who reached out to me is a paramedic. And she said, I am a paramedic. I see people experiencing homelessness every day in uh, my line of work, and I see them often at a moment of tremendous need where someone perhaps is overdosed or there's a health, acute health crisis on the streets. And I never looked at those individuals as anything but problems until I saw one of your videos. And I realized that there's an entire backstory that a lot of neighbors who are on the streets might be self-medicating, that we often look at the cause of our individual experiencing homelessness who are, you know, perhaps have a substance abuse issue as that substance abuse issue, oftentimes it's an effect. It's not a cause. The cause was upstream. There is fragility because there's plenty of people who are housed who have substance abuse issues. The difference is in a functioning society, you have access to some form of treatment and you can have your mental health you know, issue or your substance addiction treated, where our neighbor's experiencing homelessness, it's incredibly difficult to do that. And then you add in all the dehumanization and the traumas and the health issues, those socks that we're handing out, those are specifically designed uh, with antimicrobial fabrics to basically be worn day in and day out for days on an end. Because, you know, foot funguses and issues, if you're in inclement weather and you're wearing the socks and you can't change it in laundry facilities. Um, So I do think narrative change is important. I just wanted to emphasize that um, we've tried at Miracle Messages to not have stories of the exceptional individual experiencing homelessness, where it's like, here's a person who they should not be homeless because no one should be homeless, right? Right. So we, we have plenty of people whose stories are very relatable. And when you hear their story, you're like, how did you end up on the streets? That's incredible. You know, you went to this school and you did this and you've accomplished that. But fundamentally, no one should be experiencing homelessness in this country. We have way too many resources, way too much um, talent to, to put to this problem. So.
0: If I can say one thing yeah, about
1: the resource question,
0: when you were interviewing me, you asked me about my family situation. In Santa Clara County, where we live, the cost of serving a person experiencing homelessness is about $80,000 a year. That includes hospitals, police, jails, um, social services of all kinds, food programs, etc. Our family, at this point, spends, I would say, less than $15,000 a year which includes a single-family home in a less expensive area, um, and the taxes and insurance and utilities, and, so, and social programs provide food stamps, social security disability, and health right. care. So the if you're talking about a family, a church, a community trying to actually provide housing, it's not that expensive compared to what government entities spend on addressing the needs of one person experiencing homelessness. So there's some, something to keep in mind in terms of what can be accomplished mm-hmm. in actually housing people who need it.
1: Yeah, and I, and I would say plus one – agree on that. And what we've seen in our basic income pilot is most of the money folks are spending, a third of it is spent on housing, a third is spent on food security. And then the last third is everything from family emergencies, where they're also looking out for family members and loved ones and others on the streets who may be in need, Uh, service dogs, to deal with, uh, you know, to, you know to, to, for disabilities, PTSD. Um, and we've had many individuals make charitable donations uh, when they receive the money. In fact, the first person who received uh, a, a check from us, Elizabeth, the first thing she did was make a donation back to Miracle Messages. And when I said, you didn't need to do this, you know, kind of, that wasn't necessary. She said, well, I didn't do it for you.
0: <laughs>
1: said, I did it for myself. So I could once again feel the dignity of being able to support the causes I believe in. And I think that, uh, that angle uh, of, of um, being able to invest in our unhoused neighbors as neighbors and being amazed and excited by the results. I think we can see a lot more of that because we're already spending a lot on this issue. It's not a choice of whether we spend on this issue or not. It's where we invest and whether we trust our unhoused neighbors Um, as neighbours.
0: One more uh, question or comment about practical steps that can be taken.
4: Um, My name is Dave Lamont. I uh, come from Glasgow to visit my brother. Uh, I volunteer for a homeless project Scotland. Uh, It's a kind of soup kitchen, so a bit like what we were mentioning earlier on there, where you actually start to talk to people who you maybe wouldn't have talked to before, and then when you've done that, you begin to meet them in the street. They know you, you know them. That's one way in which we, you know, we start to kind of break down some of those barriers. But my point was probably what we're finding in in Scotland and in Glasgow is there is an awful lot of overlap between the various charities and not-for-profit. Mm. And what we're not seeing is good synergies. What we're not seeing is people coming forward with their specialisms, you know, that maybe need to step forward. So that integration of all of that not-for-profit capability is something i think that is really holding a lot of what we're trying to do back. Mm. It's just a comment. <laughs> Thank you. Great point. Yeah.
0: Well, unfortunately, we are at the end of our scheduled program. We do have uh Kevin's book here. He will sign books. We do have some sign-up sheets for programs through Miracle Messages that you can get involved in. Feel free, please stay around, talk uh continue to discuss the problem.
1: Oh, and I think we're doing on November 29th. Is that right? Can I do a plug Yeah, please. That? So I think on November 29th, anyone who felt compelled to sign up to be a phone buddy uh, through Miracle Messages, we're going to do a, a training with folks through the Commonwealth Club. So you'll be in a cohort of other attendees and connect deeper with folks who are maybe listening at home as well. Um, and I'm going to stick around for a little while to sign books and get to know each of you. So I hope to chat more about it then.
0: So please stay around a bit, get to know one another as well. Uh, our thanks to Kevin Adler, author of When We Walk By, Forgotten Humanity, Broken Systems, and the Role We Can Each Play in Ending Homelessness in America. If you'd like to learn more about the club, there's membership information on your uh, chairs. Uh, You can also go to commonwealthclub.org. And I'm Gloria Duffy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. See you the next time. And uh, uh, good luck in any efforts you make to do some outreach to our homeless neighbors. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher.